0: What's the cause of this commotion, motion, motion our country through? It is the ball a-rolling on for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, for Tippecanoe and Tyler, too. And with them will beat little Van, 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 Van as a used a man. And with, with them will we'll beat little Van. Hello, and welcome to the Civil War Podcast Episode 8, The Empire of Slavery. We turn our attention away from events in Texas for a couple episodes, but don't worry, this narrative is about to unify. Today, we'll look at the great struggles for the presidency, which set the stage for the annexation of Texas, and eventually the Civil War itself. To do this, we need to understand conflicting American ideals, political parties, and especially as how they related to the questions of American identity and race. Leaving aside some complicated history, the two parties of the day were the Democrats, no longer called the Democrat Republicans by this point, and the Whigs. As is usually the case with American parties, they were strange combinations of ideology, regional political trends, economic interests, and political coalitions. To clarify, following the adoption of the Constitution, the Anti Federalist Party coalesced around the perceived lack of security against potential tyranny of the central government. They, in fact, broadly failed in their original goals, but this propelled them into a greater victory. The Federalist Party succeeded all too well, and their leadership slowly died off without really having a political program ongoing to replace it. In addition, leading anti-Federalist Thomas Jefferson and his allies built a potent low-level political organization, arguably the first modern political party as we think of it today. His ideology focused around small-R republicanism and the idea of building a nation of free farmholders, growing crops both for themselves and the market. Jefferson didn't much care for industrialism or the factory floor, but his vision was hardly short-sighted. Indeed, later free soil politicians could find very little fault in his concept while settling the frontier territories of the Louisiana Purchase he made. That said, the party's most unifying figure in more recent years was Andrew Jackson, who transformed national culture in a way hardly comprehensible today. Politics in the time of the Founding Fathers mostly remained in the hands of a relatively small number of influential and usually wealthy families. This didn't mean politics completely excluded newcomers, but the old money practices of the East did not win favor as settlers pushed ever westward and culture flattened, leveled, and expanded jackson embodied the growing ambitions of the united states and not coincidentally an aggressively hostile attitude towards native american tribes now the latter wasn't only random cruelty though not much better for it at this age, the united states still feared great britain and had fought two wars with the mother country in jackson's lifetime and in both many native tribes allied themselves to britain and yet jackson's primary targets for removal were tribes such as the Cherokee and Choctaw, who sided with the United States and had already begun adopting much of its culture, technology, and ideals. Instead of finding some way of integrating them into the United States in some fashion, Jackson and his party set out to expel them completely. The resulting trail of tears became one of the most infamous crimes committed by the United States government. Then-President Martin Van Buren carried it out. And over, in fact, the direct order of the Supreme Court, and the objections of the Whig Party. Regardless of treaties, protests, and laws, Jackson had an army, and a lot of settlers eager to set up homes on Cherokee land. Such men, small farmers and unskilled workers, formed the base of Jackson's political power, too. It's useful to look at how Democrats conceived of American identity and how it interacted with their policies. Adopting an egalitarian ideology, they often didn't differentiate much between free men, or at least they proclaimed this as an ideal. Settlers and immigrants tended to mix freely and formed new communities, incorporating just about anyone who showed up, whether in Missouri or in New York. Democrats also had a more broad-minded view of religion and culture, forming some ethnic groups into voting blocks that simply had no political alternative. And to accompany the less wealthy citizens, we also see a number of very wealthy financiers and merchants backing the overflowing vision of party. James McPherson, author of Battle Cry of Freedom, describes the result as an ideology of expansion in space and scope for the new nation. He contrasted the Democrats against their rivals, saying, While the democratic notion of progress envisioned the spread of existing institutions over space, the Whig idea envisaged the improvement of those institutions over time. Indeed, the Whigs created, in an American context the politics of intensification, becoming the party of internal growth, often industrial in character. The Whigs found their genesis in effectively building atop the foundations of the Federalists, but adopting the new populism. They found new justifications for old policies, such as the National Bank, but also developed these ideas into more effective and efficient forms than the Federalists had ever dreamed of. And also, if we're being honest, it was kind of sort of built out of the ego and sheer will of Henry Clay. Clay embodied American ambition in a different fashion than Andrew Jackson. Though not quite among the wealthiest of citizens at birth, his family nonetheless had much, much more than the average Virginian in both land and slaves. As an eager young man, he settled in Kentucky and built a fine legal and political career. His exploits included defending Aaron Burr, on treason charges. Yes, that Aaron Burr. He also gambled for outrageous sums, advocated loudly and at length for his preferred policies, and he looked dashing through it all. Clay, with a bit of a rebellious streak, would never bow to the will of someone as inelegant or perhaps thuggish like Andrew Jackson. So, although a Democrat-Republican, he effectively went out and split with a large group of Jackson's opponents, forming a new opposition after years of one-party rule. This Whig coalition had much, like the Democrats, created an unusual collection of industrialist academics, plantation owners, skilled laborers, and devout evangelicals. Now, as we've seen, Whig ideology, unsurprisingly, appears like an inverted vision of the Democrats. Their voters tended to be more professional and evangelical in outlook, and they dominated many elite institutions. Whigs were usually less interested in racial separatism or aggression abroad but instead focused on a kind of national identity politics. Whigs often displayed very little taste for slavery or its racial basis, even though many substantial slaveholders were Whigs themselves, leading to a weird situation where non-slave-owning Democrats could be more explicitly pro-slavery than their slaveholding Whig neighbors. At the same time, we should not simply pretend that the Whigs were pure and simple folk supposedly more enlightened than the Democrats. Whigs, especially in the northern states, were at times violently opposed to anyone outside a surprisingly narrow band of acceptable Americans, which mostly included English, Scottish, or Scots-Irish, plus the odd French, or German, or Scandinavian Protestant. Many immigrants, especially Catholic ones, were treated so badly by the northern Whigs that it caused serious electoral problems here and there. Alongside this issue was the Whig embrace of prohibition long before it became law, much to the true grin of immigrants with a cultural history of social drinking, and the fact that many Whigs, or at least sympathetic people of the upper classes, descended into a variety of pseudoscientific quackeries alongside genuinely advanced or open-minded ideas about the world. In short, the two parties were working on creating a new American identity, but approached the concept from two very different positions. This was important because we should remember the sheer youth of the American nation as an identity at all. It was still being formed at the conceptual level. The idea of what it meant to simply be American was itself in dispute. John C. Calhoun, of course, brought his own exclusionist vision for America, but it was not yet a strong or widely understood vision, and its reach very limited. Calhoun wanted to create a political following built more or less slowly around slavery. In theory, This could be compatible with the National Party, but in practice, prioritizing slaveholding over all else meant ignoring policies that appealed the free states, which at this time were growing stronger and stronger with each passing year. At this time, Calhounism couldn't break the party system or Jacksonian democracy, though as we will see later this episode, Calhoun will personally walk into one of the most fortunate political wins in American history. However, when speaking of Calhoun, we should also examine the significance of race and racism in the United States. To be blunt, these attitudes don't make any sense logically, nor did they ever, so attempting to formulate some grand theory just isn't going to happen. Instead, let's look at some of the foundational strains of thought present in the United States which contributed. First, we should understand that many educated Europeans in the 18th and 19th centuries believed in race as a fundamental reality. Different ethnic groups were assigned broad character traits, and these were often presumed to be innate to some degree, not merely taught. This does not mean that such ideas were applied consistently, just that when Englishmen talked about the Anglo-Saxon race, they often meant it. And they meant it whether or not they could apply it logically or not. It's not as though Celts, Britons, Danes, Normans, Scots, Welsh, and Irish hadn't mixed for centuries anyway. The Anglo-Saxon was a useful myth-making tool, regardless of whether or not it was a fact. However, transplanted onto American shores, with the post-independence expansion and immigration, well, the dominant thought formed a newer concept of white identity. Now, the actual origins of white as a concept are historically murky and may not be American in origin. However, it does seem to be an intellectual offspring of Enlightenment thinking, and the United States is, if nothing else, the child of the Enlightenment. Enlightenment thinkers aimed to systematize and rationalize the world, but in doing so, they sometimes imposed a false order on an unruly reality, just like placing the easy label of Anglo-Saxon was applied over the uncomfortably messy English reality. The slow expansion of white identity in the United States demonstrates this clearly, By which I mean it's clear as mud. After the American Revolution, it surely included former Englishmen, right? And really all British, I suppose. At least if they weren't Irish or Scottish Catholics. It probably included Germans, after all the British monarchs also ruled Hanover. Over time, however, more and more nationalities joined the American project, and most became white. Scandinavians were easy enough to include, usually Protestant and culturally not too dissimilar to England. French Catholics in Louisiana proved somewhat of a stretch, especially given that quite a few had African ancestry, though this was often ignored in practice. Still, in this time, most Southern and Eastern Europeans weren't considered white, or at least it was very questionable, and the same extended to Irish Catholics for another two or three generations. Native Americans or American Indians were mostly kept out of consideration for white identity if they retained a separate tribal identity although intermarriage occurred constantly on the frontier. Finally, which is about to become important due to Texas, the United States also waffled heroically on the question of how to identify what we would now call Latin Americans. In reality, despite all of the blather about how this was a racial identity, the real question was more about whether or not you assimilated into the mainstream, and those who looked different or retained their ethnic identity were in some fashion excluded. In short, Americans implicitly identified two primary races for their cultural context, white and black, even though in reality, of course, they knew logically that this wouldn't actually summarize all human experience. Yet having done so, they seemed to have a dreadful time avoiding it. It profoundly altered American thinking, and not for the better. Even to this day, Americans frequently try to impose this idea onto themselves foreign nations, and even reality itself. Additionally, it should be understood that most other New World nations didn't have quite the same level of bifurcation. Certainly, unfair privilege and harsh racism existed in some form almost everywhere, but most of the New World adopted a far more flexible attitude towards race that acknowledged free status, class, and culture as well. For example, During the Haitian Revolution, many exiled planters journeyed to, or at least through, the United States. There was more than a small culture clash when, say, South Carolina planters met these exiles and realized that the proud French slave owners sometimes had African-born wives, and this was totally normal in their society. By contrast, open intermarriage was usually unacceptable in most of American society at that time. While planters not infrequently slept with their slaves, They did not marry them or elevate them to family. And yes, that is as horrifying as you can imagine. I want to emphasize here again that Democrats were on the social edge of expanding what it meant to be a proper citizen of the nation. And in doing so, they encompassed basically any European. At the same time, this was part of creating the nascent idea of white supremacy. The concept of social equality for those who could graspit, it, became a powerful magnet, and the allure of becoming equal often made adopting a white identity attractive and easy. And since the Constitution functionally guaranteed legal equality to all free American citizens, it proved very difficult for political groups to exclude whole categories of voters. They had a tendency to remember that, and choose other candidates, as the Whigs would discover to their chagrin. This was a real advancement in its own way, but at an awful cost. African Americans in the colonies had mostly been, and mostly remained, slaves. They didn't get a vote, and despite the existence of some free communities, the primary way they experienced American life was through exclusion and subordination, and most other Americans viewed this as entirely normal. Or at least, it was normalized, since slave owners found it so advantageous. Slavery created and enforced racist ideology, where opportunities for freedom were largely denied to slaves and freedmen, and likewise social and economic advancement denied. The pleasing lie was to declare that Africans could never be equal to white Americans, that they were inherently inferior. The lie made the whole rotten system easy to swallow. Nonetheless, a slow but steady march of abolition following the revolution saw slavery outlawed piecemeal, and opportunities for free African Americans improved over time, though marked by violent reprisals meant to enforce racial exclusion. In addition, we should understand that even many of the most radical abolitionists assumed, like other Americans, that race was a fundamental basis of civilization in some way. They often shied away from the obvious stupidities, but this does not mean that they were inherently free of prejudices. They were men and women of their time. They can be judged properly for trying to do better, not for achieving moral perfection. In fact, no party or section or faction was ever truly able to resolve these contradictions in the antebellum era. Instead, the Civil War would eventually shatter the existing party and political and social systems. And yet the legacy of these trends would not go away, and in fact haunted the Republic for generations to come. It was against the background of this burgeoning political, but not sectional, conflict that the Whigs took the presidency in 1840, their first presidential term, and proof that they had arrived as a national party. Now remember, the Whigs are not abolitionists, yet they are often adjacent to it. They are, in one sense, the party of modernization, and even Whig slaveholders often questioned deeply the viability or desirability of slavery in an industrializing world. To that end, the election of 1840 was momentous for several reasons. First, though not a foregone conclusion, the Whigs had a great advantage going in due to the relative weakness of Martin Van Buren, the incumbent president and successor to Andrew Jackson. Economic issues were the primary motivator, as the country hadn't yet recovered from a depression, and this tends to run against incumbents. Now, this opportunity sparked a major fight within the Whig Party for the nomination most specifically pitting Henry Clay against William Henry Harrison. Now, William Henry Harrison deserves much more time than I can give to him. He was emblematic of Whig identity in a way few people were. To be short, however, Harrison was a frontiersman, a respected military officer who won the Battle of Tippecanoe, and a former slave owner. And he also had held a number of important positions in the Midwestern United States. However, by the 20s and 30s, Harrison had essentially retired and begun to move closer to the anti-slavery movement and teetotalism. As you might guess from that description, this made him something of an anti-Andrew Jackson with equal accomplishments but different politics. Now at the party convention, Harrison's delegates decisively outplayed Henry Clay. Widely respected, Clay practically embodied the Whig Party, of which he was also the founder, Yet, he also had a great many political enemies due to his long career in politics and, well, just being Henry Clay all the time. Harrison had something Clay lacked, a strong military record, but also numerous qualities which could appeal beyond the Whig base, and so he was duly selected as the party's candidate. Harrison also benefited from a unique amount of luck along the campaign trail. First, he broke presidential tradition by campaigning actively, which might easily have backfired for another politician. But the Democrats' own tactics did the same to them and to a much greater degree. Harrison had long presented himself as an upwardly mobile man of class and education. But in the kind of political move that was bound to hilariously collapse in the Jacksonian era, a Democratic newspaper suggested that to give him, that is, Harrison, a barrel of hard cider, at a pension of 2,000 a year, and he will sit the remainder of his days in his log cabin. This jab became an instant hit with the Whig Party. Harrison, though still embracing his man-of-class, upstanding persona, was not averse to equally presenting the identity of a down-home Westerner. And in truth, he was both at once, and his personal appeal made him an easy choice for the growing Western electorate. In the end, Harrison had enough votes to completely quash Van Buren. Of course, Van Buren had crucial flaws that wrecked his campaign. He never possessed the personal popular touch like his patron Andrew Jackson, and held a well-earned reputation as a schemer. And during the last months of his election, the gathering depression utterly wrecked the Democrats' party support in every national section. Unfortunately for the Whigs, Harrison lacked time and a proper successor. After only one month in office, Harrison took sick and quickly died. Despite his age, he had been hale and hearty when he stepped into the presidency, and possibly his exertions at the inauguration fatally weakened him. However, several weeks after taking office, he caught a nasty chest infection, and the combination of pneumonia and bad medical care, well, led to his quick death. Although some modern researchers believe the cause could instead be traced to diseased water supply. Suddenly, John Tyler became president, and everything changed for the Whig Party. Tyler had been selected as the Whig's vice presidential candidate after Henry Clay declined this dubious honor, largely to balance the ticket in an attempt to appeal more broadly. The problem was that Tyler's politics were far, far closer to the Democrats than Whig's, mostly because he was a Democrat. In political terms, Tyler had joined the Whig Party due to being in the anti-Andrew Jackson wing of the Democrat Republicans, but he possessed strong ties to John C. Calhoun and his pro-slavery ideology. Tyler had, in fact, supported Henry Clay for the Whig nomination in 1840, and in part, his obtaining the vice presidency was a political reward, but he didn't precisely fit in with the Whigs at all. As president, Tyler vetoed a number of important Whig-backed bills, due to having an especially strict view of the Constitution, all good Calhounite ideology. Perhaps the most critical of these were intended to build a third bank of the United States, Andrew Jackson having ended the second, as well as various new projects for internal improvements in homesteading. While certainly not the only point of contention, Tyler was unable to build a working relationship with any of the major Whig leaders. Clay fumed that now... Having had a perfect chance to implement the American system he had so long dreamed of, he was blocked by a petty political nobody, his accidentcy. The fact that Clay nearly had the office himself undoubtedly stung even worse. As a side note, the famous orator Congressman Daniel Webster hung around the Tyler administration long enough to negotiate some critical treaties regarding the exact boundaries of Maine and Minnesota with British Canada. He then left the cabinet reputation intact. We may get around to discussing him, especially his anti-slavery work, in the future. But for now, we pause to note that even influential and popular Whigs such as Webster were running from Tyler as fast as possible. Some historians also believe that Webster successfully outwitted the devil, but I am afraid that that's never been confirmed by documentary evidence. Now, in Washington, D.C., intraparty relations got so bad that the Whigs literally expelled Tyler from the Whig Party midterm, an event never repeated in the history of the Republic. This didn't entirely suit Tyler's interest, but wasn't quite as bad for him as may be assumed. Tyler intended to build his own party organization inside the Whigs, essentially taking over the Whig Party from within and turning it into a pro-slavery Calhounite bastion. To that end, he ripped the patronage right out of the hands of existing Whig leaders and handed it off to his favorites. In this, he was gleefully aided by Democrats, happy to confirm his nominees. John C. Calhoun, in particular, strung along the pliable Tyler with promises that he just might become the Democratic nominee in 1844. Though Tyler had achieved high office by luck, he wanted the recognition that winning his own election could bring. Calhoun, however, never intended anything like it, he still hoped to become president himself. And while Tyler was busy fighting his own party in Washington, Calhoun accepted Webster's old post as Secretary of State and helped a project much favored by both Tyler and himself, the annexation of Texas. For Calhoun, this promised to give him everything he could desire, an expansion of slavery, great achievement he could point to, and of course a prominent national position to communicate his vision. However, Annexing Texas was in part a continuation of Webster's diplomacy, just on a new boundary. In this period, Texans had often felt vulnerable to Mexican attack and had not 100% secured their independence. They had skirmished against several assaults from Mexico in recent years since establishing their nominal freedom. And of course, since most Texans now had their roots in the United States, it did seem like a logical choice to join. That said, the United States was not the only suitor. Britain, too, saw opportunities in Texas. Texas could provide a separate source of cotton and agricultural goods and become a convenient market for British goods in turn, while allowing Britain another way of pressuring Mexico or the United States. Additionally, Texas at this time still had very unclear borders, and an expansive Texas might even establish itself in or near California. Opening a new permanent British seaport on the Pacific coast. A British Texas would therefore have represented a seismic shift in the politics of the New World. For Tyler personally, Texas offered the possibility of an independent accomplishment of his own, something he could stake a legacy and quite possibly stake a reelection campaign upon. To this end, he offered Texas very generous terms in exchange for annexation, in particular, assumption of its large public debt. For Texas, Now mostly inhabited by American settlers, the offer of physical security, financial opportunity, and perhaps a sense of returning home won out. In the end, Calhoun and Tyler prevailed and were able to send a treaty of annexation to the Senate for ratification. Texas would become part of the United States at last. But then Tyler and Calhoun managed to destroy the entire Texas project, ruined both of their cunning schemes and arguably set in motion the events which would call the Civil War with a single letter. Folks, you can't make this stuff up. It basically came down to what Calhoun's ideology had turned into. Although he had started from a standpoint well within the American political tradition, bit by bit it had become more and more extreme. By the time of the treaty, Calhoun was essentially advocating a permanent slave state, a society built on race-based slavery from the ground up everywhere. It's hard to tell where his ambition for the presidency ended and his ideology began, in fact, since he felt that without making the federal government publicly support slavery everywhere, the institution might inevitably falter and fail. Therefore, from Calhoun's perspective, it made perfect sense to send a letter stating that the great purpose in annexing Texas was to strengthen and protect slavery. It's also why he completely failed to see the consequences. The message horrified Whigs, And even put many Democrats on edge. Democrats wanted expansion, yes, but not necessarily expansion for the purpose of slavery. In June of 1844, therefore, the Senate voted down the Treaty of Annexation, following a firestorm of protest and a flaming defeat for Tyler. This was virtually the last gasp for Tyler's presidency as well. His attempt to build a party for himself completely failed. He did buy enough influence with patronage to convene his own convention, but it was an utterly lost cause from the beginning, and he had no popular support whatsoever, a rather crucial failure in a voting democracy. His rebellion had embittered the Whigs, of course, and they wouldn't have him back now if he'd begged on his knees. Tyler's last hope lay in support from the Democrats, but they prized loyalty, which the party-hopping Tyler clearly lacked. Democrats laughed at the idea of supporting him, nominated James K. Polk instead, whom we will discuss next episode. But Tyler, in the last days of his administration, had one final card to play. You see, a treaty, including the Treaty of Annexation with Texas, required senatorial approval by a two-thirds majority. Between the relative balance of parties in Calhoun's letter, Tyler's Texas treaty couldn't even muster a meager one-third of the vote. However, The Constitution specifies that states may be created by a simple act of Congress, a normal law with only a majority vote required. It was this hook that Tyler seized upon. The legality of this is unclear. At the very least, it was questionable, but with some log rolling and having the bill go through at the very tail end of the congressional session, he was able to get it passed. Whatever reservations people might have about the process, it would become essentially impossible to undo once the legal gear started grinding. And so it was that Texas slouched its way into the National Union, but Tyler received little credit for it. With that, John Tyler finally left office, and largely from the memory of Americans. While not without real talent, Tyler's ambitions and the means he attempted to use to achieve them proved too great for his abilities, support, and standing. Throughout his life, Tyler was almost always defined by what he was not. He was first not a Jacksonian Democrat, then not a Northern Whig, then not a Whig at all, then not really a Democrat, and finally not a serious presidential candidate. Nonetheless, President Polk broadly continued Tyler's major policies, so much so that it makes very clear how little in common Tyler had with the Whigs in the first place. Perhaps the greatest impact Tyler had on the United States was that he accidentally blocked the ascent of Henry Clay to the presidency. Clay's policies, backed by a strong Whig block in Congress, would have put in place many of the defining features of the Republicans but a generation early. Texas in the West might well have been annexed, but under very different terms and most likely with a far different outcome. That said... We shouldn't feel too bad for Tyler, because by a curious coincidence, he had one of the happiest endings in American political history. His first wife had sadly passed away during his term of office, and it seemed as though his remaining years might become lonely ones. However, during a naval review aboard the USS Princeton in 1844, a minor disaster changed all that. By a weird tale, which we may get into down the line because... This too ends up having a weird impact on Civil War history. A petty personal rivalry turned into a deadly crisis. You see, the captain of the Princeton had also cast its main naval cannon, the world's largest at the time. Unfortunately, he lacked the engineering skill to do so properly while trying to copy leading naval designer John Erickson's plan. Fatally weakened by the improper casting, the gun exploded during a test firing and killed, among others, representative david gardner president tyler attending the naval review aboard the same ship escaped the shrapnel as he happened to be below deck at the time now as it happened gardner's daughter julia was aboard as well along with many of washington's elite she fainted with grief and shock at the sight of her father and president tyler personally carried her to safety she was 30 years younger than tyler yet the two of them fell in love and were married by the end of the year By all accounts, they spent the rest of their lives in devoted and content matrimony until Tyler's death in 1862. We may actually get into that event, because Tyler played a very small role following the breakup of the Union, but that is for another day. Also, because this is just too weird not to mention, Tyler and Julia actually have one surviving grandson. Yes, as of the year 2022. Sometimes I have to tell you, fact is stranger than fiction. But for more facts, join us next week for Episode 9, The Dark Horse, the presidency of James K. Polk. Thank you for listening, and hope you have a wonderful day.